Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, January 13th, 2021. I'm John Pothorts, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So uh, at some point today, uh, Donald Trump will be impeached for the second time. Uh, it uh, he making him the only president to have been impeached twice. Unclear what happens after this. Um, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, could in theory somehow put the impeachment in her pocket and not transmit it to the Senate to lead to a trial. Uh, this is putting the incoming Biden administration and incoming Senate Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer, who will only become majority leader, uh, I believe, on the 20th when uh, when Kamala Harris is sworn in as, uh, as the uh, vice president of the United States to break the tie. Um, so Mitch McConnell is in charge till then, but the, ha- the Senate uh, can only meet if 100 senators agree to meet before the 19th of January and so there would have to be an impeachment trial on the on the day before uh, the one day impeachment trial on the day before the inauguration of the new president. So, you know, all of this seems like uh, uh, a muck and a mess. And as I said yesterday, this is why when I wrote in favor of impeachment and removal uh, on the day of the riot on the 6th of January, that uh, it needed to be done the following day or impeachment needed to be done the following day so that there could be a trial in the following week. And so now, just like everything else in Washington, however this is going to be done, it's going to be done as badly as possible in a way that introduces, that uh, mucks everything up and uh, uh, removes whatever clarity might be provided by the impeachment itself. So this is, I think, a very unfortunate Nonetheless, it still needs to happen for the reasons that we have been outlining, I believe, which is that uh, the reason, you know, the main reason is that uh, uh, a, a, a precedent needs to be established that um, that this uh, barn door to sedition and revolution that Trump has opened uh, at the highest office in the land needs to be slammed shut, nailed shut, and, uh, you know, and basically sealed with epoxy uh, so that it never happens again. Does anybody, does anybody, uh, does anybody have a more, I wouldn't say optimistic, because there's no reason to say that anything should be optimistic. Does anybody have a more positive or favorable reading of what is going to happen today, tomorrow, and the next day? I think you're being a little too harsh, frankly, on, on how this has unfolded so far. The, the alacrity with which we've gone from the events of the six to impeachment proceedings is very un-Washington. Uh, it's very speedy. And it has been circumspect insofar as they're not overreaching in the articles. Um, it's pretty cut and dried. And the impeachment managers that Nancy Pelosi has selected, while many of them are hacks, and kind of obnoxious grandstanders. Um, that's slim pickings in the Democratic caucus. You take what you get. But in selecting um, Jamie Raskin, I believe his name is, uh, yeah. 
lead impeachment manager is incredibly savvy, um, not just because of the tragedy that he has recently suffered, um, but makes his, he's generally a respected member and um, suggests that they're not looking for some sort of a, a, a series of a partisan vent fest. There's plenty of time for them to screw it up, but they haven't yet. And there are plenty of Republicans who would love for them to be provided an off-ramp by Democratic overreach, and they haven't gotten it. So I think, frankly, it's um, it's an uncharitable assessment of Democratic efforts so far. Well, and okay. also the, the, the other thing the delay has, has done, um, kind of inadvertently, but actually I think for long-term benefit for the Republican side, is it's forced some of these uh, conflicts that we knew to have been simmering in the caucus on the Republican side out into the open, namely Liz Cheney and Kevin McCarthy's fight. And it is forcing the hands of Republicans, as it should, to, to sort of come out with statements in advance of this and to signal, as McConnell recently did through the press, that he's not going to stand in the way of impeachment. It, it has actually given people time to examine their, I hope, their conscience and act accordingly. And I think if it had turned right around in 48 hours, there might have been some hesitation on the part of some Republican members who who felt that they didn't really have a choice because it's being rushed. So I don't mind that we've seen some of that squabbling out in the open. Okay, but Abe, uh, okay, to, to play devil's advocate here, uh, the morning, this morning that <laughs> impeachment is now going to be debated or voted on presumably at some point during the day by the House, CBS News came out with a poll that says that 85% of Republicans uh, oppose impeachment. Not in the House. I mean, 85% of Republicans in the United States. Now, we know polling's bad, polling's terrible. But, um, you know, when you have uh, numbers like that, even if the polls are relatively unrepresentative, it would seem that the message that uh, Republican lawmakers are going to get is that the public does not support impeachment. And if... I hate to say it this way because we can we can get into impeachment. The proceedings like this, this is not a recall election. In some fundamental sense, it does not matter what the public has to say about impeachment. Uh, this is a it's a political question, but it is also a procedural question about the separation of powers, the behavior of the president, and all of that. And the fact that he has fans in the country and in his party should not matter one wit, although, you know, I don't want to be naive and say that it doesn't matter because that's the point I'm trying to make here is that uh, polling data like this, um, I don't think are, is going to help the cause of a bipartisan effort to say that what happened last week uh, was so beyond the pale that the that the person who said march down to the Capitol and, you know, be wild and have everything go crazy, uh, you know, that that person uh, won't, it'll be war, it'll be, I don't, anyway, you seem, you, you get my I, I know what you're saying. Yeah, I, I'm very hesitant to um, take any polling as gospel, but um, uh, nonetheless, um, it is very dispiriting um, to see um, the, the general Republican um, um, opposition to impeach to impeaching Trump over this, which I, which I think whether the the polling is you know um, is on the button or just gives a general flavor of things, uh, I'm, I'm sure is is accurate to some extent, um, because what what we see again and again is that given just a little time. Um, 
the, the right, and this happens on the left too, but you, you're, you can warm to any cause that is um, bubbling up on your side. Uh, you just need a little time to start to, especially when the other side is, during that time, is attacking. Um, so to you just need a little time to sort of warm to the cause to decide that um, you are under attack. And while there may have been a, a point um, to 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 what your uh, opposition is saying at some point um, now it's gone too far now it's a joke now it's now it's now there's overreach and uh, this whole thing is a farce um, that's not my thinking but that but that kind of thinking um, happens and it happens quite quickly and well, it's really like interesting that, it is like a reversion to the mean or the reversion to equilibrium I mean it'll be it'll be 48 hours for people to say, look, people, you know, the public knew Donald Trump was when they elected him. And, you know, I mean, people should take him seriously, but not literally. And maybe some people in the crowd took him literally, but he didn't mean to be taken literally. And after all, you know, you did the platform parlor and you say nice, you said nice things about Black Lives Matter. Where were you when Black Lives Matter was rioting and you didn't say anything? People literally are emailing us to complain where were we when Black Lives Matter was rioting and why didn't we say anything? I've gotten people in my personal life who were like, what did you say then? I was like, it was all I talked about for three months. <laughs> right. You were there. Um, it's truly fascinating to see them retreat into this preferred fantasy. Um, what's really interesting here, are there are no instances we should go into, and we're going to go into the next segue to the next the last 24 hours of events, which have been rather profound. Um but there are no institutional voices on the right that are lobbying against impeachment. The White House is silent. They do not have any anybody on staff well, does Fox News pushing count? this sort of thing. Well, that's where I'm getting to. Okay. The, the Congress, both chambers, has decided that this is going to be an open vote, that they're not whipping it, that you, you can do what you think is best for your constituents, your political position, your your ideals of posterity, what have you, whatever, whatever moves you. It's a vote of conscience. Um, the only people who are pushing this sort of thing, John, as you said, are, are pushing really forcefully against it, are the media outlets, are the conservative um, uh, institutions that are, are beholden to an, a, a perpetual insurgency. And uh, they're going to be pretty effective, I would guess, in the short term, because the Republican Party has spent the last 15 years ceding its influence to these outlets. But and they they also do, and but that's not necessarily a permanent condition because these outlets derive their authority from people in power. It's not the other way around. And it well, may take a while to get that way. Um, also, what's happening, because this is the way things go down now, because everything sort of happens at once, there's been a blurring with the case against Trump, with the the impeachment case against Trump, with the social media and um, corporate crackdowns against Trump supporters and Republican. And that and that so there the right is gaining some strength, some sort of oppositional strength from that. They are they are making the the case against the corporate crackdowns uh, into a case against impeachment. Well, and this is why I think we should we should not we should be cautious about putting uh, overthinking that CBS poll because uh, I have a lot of Republicans in my life who who were pro Trump and a lot of them the attitude that might be reflected in that poll is like 
he's about to be out. Why would you go through all this trouble? What's the big, like, he's about to be out. Whereas I think institutionalists and people like Liz Cheney in particular have been standing up and saying, this is a matter of democratic hygiene, basically. It's not, and it doesn't matter if he's out next week. It's, it's, as you said, John, we're establishing a precedent, a principle that this is beyond the pale and we will put a swift end to it. So I think, and because if you look at other polling data that shows whether uh, Republicans supported what happened last Wednesday on the Hill. They don't. So I, I do think we need to be careful about it. And this is a messaging issue for the Republicans who need to be very consistent about why impeachment is necessary and why they voted the way they did. And in fact, a lot of them are doing so under threat of violence um, from their own constituents, um, as are Democrats, obviously, too. But there, you know, there's a lot of pressure being brought to bear on some of these uh, members of Congress. And they it really is a vote of conscience. And I hope most of them make the right choice. But um, I don't want to overthink this idea that we have these partisan, embedded, entrenched uh, Republican Trump people who are going to oppose anything that, that comes after Trump. Well, look, I mean, you know, I don't want to, you know, what is that term that someone came up with? Nut finding or nut, you know. Nut picking. Nut picking. Okay. So I don't want to nut pick, but, you know, a newly elected member of Congress, <clears throat> I'm sorry, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the, the QAnon candidate uh, from, is it Georgia or Florida? Georgia. I can't remember. Georgia. Literally tweeted this last night, quote, President Trump will remain in office. This Hail Mary attempt to remove him from the White House is an attack on every American who voted for him. Democrats must be held accountable for the political violence inspired by their rhetoric. President Trump will remain in office, says a member of Congress on January 12th, eight days before the inauguration of the new president. Now, again, she is a, you know, she's a nut. We understand that she is a nut, but a um, hundred and some odd Republicans voted last week to object to the to the uh, electors in Pennsylvania and Arizona. Uh, maybe that was symbolic. Maybe they were just brown nosing Trump, or or you know, or throwing a, a bone to their followers because they to Trump's followers or to their. Uh, more extreme elements of their supporters because they knew that it would fail. Um, but I, I, the message is not clear. Uh, it, it is clear that leading Republican lights, I mean, if you have the, uh, you have, if you have the number three person in the house, Liz Cheney, and most importantly, you have the most powerful Republican in Washington, Mitch McConnell signaling, Liz Cheney is, is going to vote for impeachment. Mitch McConnell is saying that he will likely, or, you know, is indicating he will likely vote to remove Trump or to convict Trump is the best way to put it now, since the vote will will almost certainly take place after he is president. But to convict Trump, um, you know, that that's, that's huge. But uh, if it ends up that 10 Republicans out of 50 vote to convict him in the House... And that a vast majority of Republicans, excuse me, in the Senate, and the vast majority of Republicans in the House vote against impeachment, then uh, the message is not clear, and the future of the party is not. It's good. It's really great that you know, uh, from my perspective, that there are voices, eloquent voices, that are 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 speaking up and, and shouting loudly. But the overall effect of this, I think, uh, maybe I'm not being fair, but uh, you know, is 
is to say that the crisis in the Republican Party is existential and that the civil war is real and will be real and that and that um, and that it will both uh, embolden and empower liberals and Democrats uh, that this division is taking place and it will embolden and empower Donald Trump because unless 17 Republicans vote to uh, convict him and uh, you know uh, he will be impeached so this is the weird thing is there will be a Senate trial unless some game gets played which I think would be very weird there will be a Senate trial after the impeachment and he cannot be removed from office but he can be convicted um, and a remedy can be found like that he can never run again in some right. fashion, right? But unless those 17 votes are there, the Republican Party is going to end up in a vastly worse position than it was as an, as an electoral machine than it was before. Well, that has always been the case, and that's always why the establishment, as it were, the institutionalists, have never engaged in the hostilities that they were alleged to have engaged in. The Republican Party has been always in, in, in a civil war since 2008, according to the press, but it was never so because the institutionalists always either cajoled or coerced the insurgents in their midst to moderate their tactics or postpone their demands. And when they couldn't do that, they engaged in strategic retreats. As, we, as I said a couple of podcasts ago, the, the establishmentarians were never combatants in the Civil War, and it was the case right up until the morning of January 6th when Mitch McConnell's, the Mitch McConnell whisperer, Josh Holmes, former chief of staff, said, nobody's declaring war on anything. We're going to get through this. But war was upon them, and Republicans never wanted to absorb the costs associated with internecine conflict, which would mean lost seats, lost influence, lost political authority, and they have engaged in the fight. The war is upon them, and they seem now to realize that there will be losses in the short term, which is better than losses in perpetuity or a fracturing of the party to the point where it ceases to exist. Um, they seem to have engaged in, in this conflict and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. We don't know how that's going to turn out, but they have never been this engaged in an inter-party fight before, a real one. Not the sort of stuff that the press the press uses civil war as a metaphor. This isn't a metaphor anymore. Well, okay, so Mitch McConnell has been crosswise of the more um, radical elements in his caucus before, and his his strategy has always been, as his book title suggests, to play the long game. You know, when Ted Cruz wanted to shut down the government, he and and McConnell loathed and loathes Cruz, loathes him. Uh, he let it happen because it was sort of like, okay, we're gonna, we'll do this, and we'll see where this goes, and we'll see how it, we'll see how it, how it happens for you. Um, that part of his way of dealing with that confrontation is to let the let what he deems to be crazy or responsible or something have its moment to let it discredit itself. Um, and that's a pretty savvy way to play politics. But at moments of crisis and peril, it may not be the way to play politics. I'm not sure there is a way to play politics here is what I'm saying. The battle lines are drawn. The, the, the positions are, are pretty firm. You know, this isn't naked self-interest on Republican parts either. The, the point of diminishing returns and associating with this 
outfit has been reached, if Georgia's any indication, Georgia's any indication, what the voters that they lost were Trump voters, not Republican voters. The Republican voters who they can count on turned out in 2020, the kind of suburbanite, affluent, white, educated voters who used to make up the backbone of the Republican Party still do to some extent, but they will not associate themselves with this movement, with this movement. But the senators, Georgia is now a purple state. Most Republican senators come from red states. They don't have to deal with the possibility that they themselves are going to be at risk from a suburban flight into Democratic hands. They win and Trump wins by 10 to 20 points. So they are not at risk. They are Lindsey Graham. You know, uh, Lindsey Graham ended up winning that race in South Carolina by 13 because that is really not a purple state. But that's Jim Dementism. What? That's Jim Dementism. And Jim Dementism. It doesn't matter. Jim Dement could have been elected forever. Your individual politicians make decisions based on their individual interests, not, not the question of whether in some broad brush their party is in good or bad shape. They want to get reelected. They don't want to be in trouble with their constituents. They don't want to be you know, thrown out in a primary challenge from somebody more extreme than they. I mean, I, I think that's the flaw in your analysis is that the individual self-interest is now clearly at odds with the self-interest of the party understood broadly. But uh, in those cases, the individual self-interest is going to win and the party's vague and co-ate general interest is going to lose, I think. I, I, you know. But that, that's actually why, that, that is why it's definitely a civil war, but it would be, I mean, I wonder if some of those uh, extremely self-interested uh, senators in particular might play a little bit of the Mitch McConnell lo- uh, long game and think it through because if he's actually convicted and he's barred from running again, which I think is actually the mo- one of the most crucial things that this impeachment could bring about, um, you know, perhaps they would be a Trump split away from the Republican Party. They'd start their own Trump party. He'd, you know, claim he's going to run one of his kids. Um, but they're, they and his Trump voters would follow him, leaving the Republican Party weaker. But then he's got to get out those voters on his own without any sort of infrastructure in the Republican Party, which could then it, it would have been a self purge, like he would have removed himself. I don't know if he'll do that. Um, but there's an infrastructure to the Republican Party that Trump has relied on for the past four years, fundraising in particular. And he's he's going to be facing lawsuits. He's going to if he's barred from running for office again, he will be weakened. Um, whether his any of his children can step up and take that mantle, I think, is a really big uh, if. Um, so I don't know. I mean, there could be if you're if you're even if you're a self-interested senator, you should probably start caring a little more about your party because you're never going to get any power back, particularly in the Senate, if you don't. But I, I think um, whether the Republican Party could survive a uh, full uh, Trump right. party a split, split off. A third party split. No, is, I agree. That's, is, yeah. is a bigger if. Yeah. Right. And there's that. Yeah. And then there is also the question of what 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 is Trump's what is the malignant? What are the depths of Trump's malignancy? I think we can see. Maybe he had an argument in his own head that uh, that it was okay for him to go to war in Georgia and that it would somehow help the Senate candidates in the runoffs. Maybe he thought that in his head, or maybe he didn't care, or maybe actually what he really wanted once 
Kemp and Raffensperger didn't do his bidding was for Georgia to pay by losing its two Republican senators and for the Republican Party to pay because it needed to, you know, it needed to see who was who and what was what. In the aftermath of what happens this week and Joe Biden's swearing in and Mitch McConnell's indicating that he wants uh, Trump uh, to be removed from office or to be convicted of the of the charges and Kevin McCarthy effectively doing the same, even though he says he's not going to vote for it. Um, will Trump spend the rest of his life attempting to destroy the Republican party? Or, you know, is that even that like, is that, is he a purely negative malignant force that is so, who is so nihilistic and, 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 and barbaric and, and, and consumed with uh, the passion of rage and revenge that that will be the focus of his remaining years? Uh, or will he have some other complicated idea about winning again or putting, you know, having Donald Jr. or Ivanka run for president or something like that? I find the latter very, um, uh, I don't know, I don't believe that he gives a crap whether or not Donald Jr. or Ivanka becomes president. I mean, I doubt he gives a. I doubt he cares one whit about them whatsoever. I don't think he cares about any human being on Earth. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think he's a pretty evil person, and that even that, uh, even that emotion, that emotion that he, you know, would want in his narcissism, he would want his children to follow him so that you know the family owned it. I, I see no evidence except you know for his huddling around them so that they can't because of family, they can't testify against him or would be loyal in that way because he could destroy them in different ways. I just, I don't know. And I, I know this is very dark and very bleak what I'm saying, but I do I do I think that, I don't know that he's uh, disciplined or, or, or focused enough to actually care that much about destroying the Republican Party when he has other stuff that he can do um, that might be more fun. You know, I, I don't know that that's necessarily fun. You know, I mean, it's fun to do it a bit here and there and screw around with stuff here and there. But he might want to golf. He might want to make a hundred, you know, a couple hundred million dollars off a website. He might want to do stuff like that. But his attack. So this is actually where maybe there's a better messaging strategy for the Republicans here, which is that he turns on anyone who doesn't do his bidding. And we've gotten a little bit of that. Certainly the inclusion of the Raffensperger phone call and the impeachment uh, charge uh, signaled that. But if you're even if you're loyal to Trump, the message should be to anyone who thinks he's going to return that loyalty. Not only will he not return the loyalty, but he'll try to destroy you if you go against him. If, you know, and and because he's so mercurial in his decision making anyway, and was as president, that could be at any moment. I mean, there there's a that I think long term would be a, even if he's barred from running for office, if he tries to literally go on the offensive against the Republican Party, that's the response. It's like, well, of course he does. Of course he did, because this is who he is. Um, right. And that's where a lot of our Never Trump friends have, have been correct and, and should get, you know, the praise for that. Like they were right about that part of his personality and how destructive someone with that amount of power with that personality uh, can be. Right. So I'm just saying that uh, the, the notion that the institutional levers of the Republican Party sensibly would want would want to get beyond Trump and to do it, you know, as formally as possible through a, a process by which he was denied return access to the party. Um, it might be true in theory, but in practice, I don't see how it's going to happen. Uh, and among other things, you know, the, the, the objections by, by his followers 
are not that easily dismissible. You know, I, I suppose, you know, I know we keep talking about how this is why the 14th Amendment talk came up this week in relation to what Congress might vote, because the 14th Amendment provides a modality according to which someone can be denied the right to run for office again. It's in the 14th Amendment that if you are seditious, you can't serve uh, in the... Con- but um, Donald Trump cannot be president again has a bill of attainder quality to it. The bill of attainder is the law that is fan- banned by, I believe, the Sixth Amendment. That's a, you, you can't write a law that is aimed at an individual person. You can't say... Christine Rosen needs to go to jail. Like, you can't do that. Um, uh, and it's an important uh, hedge against tyranny and against the mob. I mean, a bill of attainder is unconstitutional. That's what but I'm saying. A, yeah, but you're describing a provision that is in the Constitution. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about the 14th the definition I'm talking about what happens in removal. In other words, if the remedy... I don't know that the remedy in removal can be Trump can't serve, can't run for president again. Well, who 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 enforces that? What is the what is the mechanism of enforcement of that? I mean, again, I'm not a scholar here. I, I'm saying that it was a it was an interestingly canny idea to invoke the 14th Amendment because it is the only provision that we know of that says someone is barred from running for office again. Uh, I don't know that you can bar Donald Trump from running for office again, even if you convict him. The only remedy for impeachment in the for removal is removal in the Constitution. It doesn't provide other penalties. You can't, you know, you can't take money from him. You know, you can't. Congress, right. I mean, Congress could pass some sort of uh, special legislation that was not flirting with Bill of Attainer territory that that solved this because we are this is novel territory. But I mean, if we live in a country where we can prevent felons from voting, but can't prevent Donald Trump from running for president again, then we really need to get more creative in our legal thinking, right? I mean, he's there. There are ways. I think there are legal means which would pass muster uh, in the Supreme Court to deal with just this. But this is new territory. These questions are all the ones we should be talking about because this has never come up before. He's the first president to be impeached twice. Uh, so, guys, let me let me uh, let me pull back for a minute and talk to you about. Um, Dan Senor's podcast post Corona, which I've been telling you for you know a month now, is um, you know sort of uh, came out of the shoot very strong as an effort to analyze on a pretty much on a weekly basis what America and the world is going to look like once we get emerge from uh, the pandemic or you know get beyond the pandemic to the extent that we can. Um, it's 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 great. It's been amazingly fun to listen to Billy Bean, uh, the great uh, baseball uh, visionary, uh, Neil Ferguson, the historian from the Hoover Institution, uh, Adam Grant, a professional organizational psychology at Wharton, who talked about what work is going to look like. Um, but uh, the 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 new one, I really commend to you. Go to go to your Apple Podcast, go to Stitcher, go to Google Play. So you can listen to, to, to Dan's new podcast with um, Yonatan Adiri, who talks about why it is that Israel has a country of 8 million people, has now uh, achieved 10% of the vaccinations on the planet Earth uh, in just uh, in about the same amount of time that we in America had, uh, had the vaccine. They had the vaccine and they just went to work to vaccinate everybody as quickly, as broadly, and as 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 efficiently as possible. It's a kind of uh, 
uh, miracle uh, and uh, and and is worthy of study, particularly given what's gone on here in the last week with the clear discovery that the early efforts to control how the virus, how the vaccine was going to be handed out, were retarding rather than improving the flow of vaccine uh, into the arms of Americans, and were basically. Uh, you know, being done for reasons other than making sure that we attain, we got through this and attained herd immunity as quickly as possible in part through through vaccination. Uh, Adiri is a, a very uh, interesting and charismatic person. The podcast itself is fascinating and fun. And uh, I really commend it to you highly post-corona with Dan Senor, um, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you can hear podcasts, go do it. You will thank me for it. Um, so the Republican Party's Solons um, are divided. The, it seems to me that uh, people that we would like to think of as the most serious of senators and, 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 and House members are either taking very seriously the prospect of voting for impeachment or removal uh, or have announced that they are going to do so, uh, none more uh, impressively, I think, than, than Liz Cheney, um, who, of course, is the daughter of former Vice President Cheney um, and very, very, very right wing. I mean, more right wing than her father, more right wing than her father in the way that everybody, <clears throat> every Republican uh, after you know, sort of after the Bush-Cheney uh, presidency has somehow, you know, moved themselves further to the right. But she is the third-ranking Republican in the House. She's a very serious person. And this is the statement that she made. On January 6, 2021, a violent mob attacked the United States Capitol to obstruct the process of our democracy and stop the counting of presidential electoral votes. This insurrection caused injury, death, and destruction in the most sacred space in our republic, Much more will become clear in the coming days and weeks, but what we know now is enough. The President of the United States summoned this mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. Everything that followed was his doing. None of this would have happened without the President. The President could immediately and have immediately and forcefully intervened to stop the violence. He did not. There has never been a greater betrayal by a President of the United States of his office and his oath to the Constitution. I will vote to impeach the President. Um. It's interesting to note, though I don't think it really matters, it's just a sort of sign of this, that um, Trump attacked Liz Cheney from the podium at the Stop the Steal rally an hour before they marched on the Capitol. Uh, he said, "Ugh, Liz Cheney, you know, she, does, you know, she stinks, or I, I can't remember quite what he said. Um, so you will hear uh, that people are doing this because, uh, you know, she's, she's, uh, she took it personally. Um, of course, everybody should should take it personally. No, you were talking about um, the details that have emerged over the last uh, 24 hours. Um, uh, and I, I think it's important in, in, in the world in which we keep being told by people who uh, want to turn an, a blind eye to what went on. Some of the details that we have learned or some of the things that were said at the press conference yesterday by the by the. Uh, by the FBI and the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, by things that we heard leaking out from uh, 
meetings that these people had with members of Congress. And then, of course, stories that have, have come out about the uh, astounding conversations that uh, Trump had, the, particularly the astounding conversation that Trump had with with Mike Pence, a man who surrendered his manhood uh, to Trump in order to become vice president and then found himself under, you know, found himself under unique pressure uh, uh, on the morning of the rally when Trump said, you can either be a hero or you can be a pussy. Yeah, I don't even know if I can unpack all that, which is part of the problem. <clears throat> we need. Well, we can set we can, we can, se- we can separate it. So so what are the two most horrible things that came out yesterday from your perspective? Say two. Just pick two. Uh, there was a lot. So I'll just go off on some thoughts that I have. Um, the I, I watched that Justice Department um, press conference, and I was uh, – I don't know what I was expecting, but sort of the retrospectives <clears throat> on that event were not very valuable because we're talking about ongoing investigations, and they're talking about you know, how we're – proceeding with the most easily indictable offenses before we proceed with more uh, complicated cases that we have to make. We've opened up these case files, yada, yada, yada. Um, well, the only question they, that I was hoping would be They arrested 170 people. Yeah. Um, and that hundreds more will follow. Hundreds a retrospective more. is necessary in the form of a bipartisan investigation with people who uh, are no longer holding political office in order to establish a timeline of events here because there's so much we do not know. I mean, we have members of Congress now saying that members of Congress are implicated in this event. Um, there's yeah, Mike, clarity Mike that Cheryl, needs to be Hold on, hold on, hold on. Because you want to be specific. Mikey Sherrill, Congresswoman from New Jersey, from, uh, you know, basically northern New Jersey suburbs of New York City, said that it was her understanding that uh, she that um, members of Congress were giving direction to uh, riot that a member of Congress, members of Congress had given had given right, had had permitted reconnaissance of the Capitol building by elements of the mob the day before the riot. Now, hopefully she's mischaracterizing events, but who knows, because an unnamed member, which might have been her for all we know, told the Huffington Post that they believed that there was a physical threat represented by their fellow members and um, that they can't have access to the vice president-elect or the president-elect. So I, we frankly have to take these allegations pretty seriously because we've all suffered a failure of imagination over the last couple of weeks, and it's just necessary to broaden your perspective at this state. Um, what I wanted to hear from that press conference from the Department of Justice, insofar as it is possible to talk about these sort of things without jeopardizing intelligence, um, what measures they are taking to prevent further acts of insurrectionary violence? Because what we're hearing from people in the Pentagon, for example, are very unguarded statements about how you know Washington is under threat here over the next week or longer, um, but we cannot necessarily sap the National Guard's reserves from the 50 states because they need them too for similar acts of insurrectionary violence directed at their state legislatures. Um, this was not presented as sort of a maybe, sort of like a, eh, it could be kind of just a contingency. This was pretty unambiguous about what's about to happen, um, which we talked about before as a possibility, but it, now it seems like an inevitability. And um, we have all the time in the world to get a proper retrospective of events here. In fact, it's impossible to move forward without them. But we're in the middle of a crisis, and the crisis is ongoing, and it's not going to end until January 20th and probably after that. So a forward-looking perspective is what I had hoped to hear, but no reporter was inclined to ask those questions, unfortunately. 
Well, I mean, I, you know, I think we know, at least in Washington, that uh, the city is going to be an armed camp to the extent that it can be. I mean, it already is. I mean, I drove around yesterday. I was telling you guys, I mean, it's, you know, they have no scale fencing, so ringing the Capitol and the White House, some with razor wire, there are National Guard troops stationed everywhere. I mean, the walk I usually take down to the Lincoln Memorial, and you can't even get close to the mall, and they're going to have extreme restrictions, and they've all already started with those. It's actually, you know, many days out versus what they usually do, which is kind of throw up some of the security measures a couple days before. This is this is now like the state of emergency has been declared. Everything everything is now in motion. And, and, and you know, the the folks who are in, uh, you know, Secret Service and, and federal police say this is the biggest security event for some of them in their entire careers. People who've been, you know, in Secret Service and elsewhere for, you know, 30 years. What, you know, what, uh, go ahead. Well, I have a question because um, I, I don't know quite what to think of this. Uh, what do we make of the letter by the Joint Chiefs to the military? Um, are you your uh, the, the the letter? So well, can you explain what it is? Sure. Yeah, uh, there was a, a memo was issued uh, yesterday by the by the Joint Chiefs of Staff to the entire military, um, uh, saying that um, Joe Biden will be the next Commander in Chief, and that uh, all service members must embody the values and ideals of the nation, and, and denouncing the riot. Um, it's kind of an unprecedented uh, uh, document. Um, we witnessed actions inside the Capitol building that were inconsistent with the rule of law, the rights of freedom of speech and assembly do not give anyone the right to resort to violence, sedition, insurrection. Um, it's unprecedented because the it, it's not really the type of um, thing on which the military would normally comment at all. But isn't it getting out of ahead of... Um any fears or concerns, which again, are not illegitimate uh, after what we saw last week, that people, there could be like QAnon Trump insurrectionists in the National Guard or in any of these security forces. I mean, the idea or, you know, any any place along the military chain of command where someone who decides to take it upon him or herself to be that rebel, um, they're getting out ahead of that and saying very clearly that would be a treasonous act. I mean, you and I don't think that's a bad thing, given the current state of paranoia. It's actually very reassuring. Well, that's terrifying. And it conflicts with the acting secretary of defense who said, I'm not going to issue any sort of statement like that because it's an insult to our service personnel. But apparently the Joint Chiefs just don't agree with that. Right. Well, remember, the joint the statement also says that we will, as as we do, we will we will obey any lawful order given us. And that's an important thing to say because they're saying we will obey any lawful order, which of course means that they are they are not obliged to obey any unlawful order. And if they are in the, if they are of the view that the president of the United States might conceivably, as a hail mary last effort, issue some directive to them to do something, they will not obey it unless they unless it is lawful. If I think they, it's, if, they, if he, he orders them to secure the capital grounds, they will not do it. I mean that, and and it is unprecedented for such a thing to be issued, a statement such a thing to be issued. Um, and if you want to what about it and say, well, they never did that when you know Bill Clinton had sex with Monica Lewinsky. Well, Bill Clinton said didn't require. It was not thinkable that the president of the United States might, who was attempting to overturn the results of a free and fair election, uh, would maybe use the levers of power at his disposal since he does not believe in democratic legitimacy. And he does not. And he and he is a worshiper of authoritarian uh, strongmen. 
and thinks that they're great and that they do what's necessary to maintain their power. And, you know, it's weird because I would never use this kind of rhetoric about him before. Like, I, you know, I, 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 as everybody knows, I am not a fan of his. I believe he was unfit to hold office. But most of that, I thought, was rhetorical and, you know, it was disgraceful that he would say that Putin was, you know, oh, well, who are, we're killers too. Why are we attacking Putin or whatever? Or say he got wonderful letters from from Kim Jong-il. But, you know, uh, a man who is capable of saying, come to Washington on January 6th, it's going to be wild, go march on the Capitol, and then sat in the building and wouldn't, you know, wouldn't, and wouldn't for three hours say anything about what was going on and was apparently excited to watch it on TV, is a person who is capable of anything. He is a person who is capable of anything. And, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't know that how, I'm happy that the military issued the statement as a result. But that's so that goes to what my what I think the worst thing about yesterday's news was, which was his response. He went down to the Alamo, signed his bit of the wall, lied about how they it built. It wasn't the, the Alamo. It was a town sorry, called a, Alamo. A town called Alamo. It's right? interesting. I don't know why he didn't go to the Alamo. <laughs> right. Much, much better uh, yeah. symbolism there for him. But it's when he like basically going to said, the Four Seasons landscaping. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. He, it's when he said, when asked... My apologies to the town of Alamo. I don't think that you're like the Four Seasons landscaping business in Philadelphia. I'm sure you're a lovely town. Sorry. Uh, the Four Seasons landscaping business. Those poor people. No, I mean, yeah. you know, now you can buy. But, uh, but he said, he was asked directly, what do you, you know, do you have any regrets? Basically, what do you think of what happened? And he was like, I, you know, people really thought that I did nothing wrong. In fact, they liked what I said. Like absolutely lacking any remorse at all, which speaks to what we were saying earlier, you know, last week, which is that little, you know, contrite video that he had, his little hostage video that his aides made him do was was completely uh, insincere. Um, but that response, the cavalier way in which he responded to that question that has put the entire nation on edge for a week. That was the moment for me where I was like, if you're a Republican who gets to actually send a message about this guy, you better do your job. Like that is, this is why these, the impeachment process, this is the reason it was created. Um, you know, I, I mentioned this yesterday about how it's very chutzpah to to say, you know, we, what we need in this country is unity and healing. And uh, and that that's why, I mean, to, to, to even think about impeachment, I mean, how, uni- how that's unifying, that's, that's how to heal. Um, you know, on the on the part of uh, on the part of people like you know Mo Brooks and Louis Gohmert and people, Mo, Mo Brooks who said you should go down there and kick ass, um, and and uh, is potentially subject to expulsion from the house. And I don't think that you know that that is something that should be dismissed so readily. That 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 might happen again, uh, in part because uh, it, it the, of the unique nature of what happened here. It's not. You want to make sure it doesn't happen again, but also, you know, the uh, extreme measure of exp- expelling a duly elected person from a House or Senate chamber, it's a very extreme measure, and it can only happen under very extreme circumstances, but this that's pretty extreme, go down there and kick ass. Like, that's not, you know, that's no joke. And his his response yesterday was to issue a statement saying, my parents raised me to be a good Christian boy. Well, they stunk at it. Yeah. Your parents stank, Mo Brooks. Don't blame them. If they if they are what you said they were, then they're then they are you know they are facing very very serious judgment wherever they are, and you shouldn't lay your evil on their shoulders. I mean that's the incitement of the crowd is is reprehensible and unforgivable. I mean, 
I'm 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 still I I can still be persuaded by the argument that it it should merit expulsion, but I'm not persuaded 100 percent yet. Neither um, am I. What he did is you know invoke the the privileges provided a lawmaker, albeit recklessly and stupidly. He objected to the seating of the Pennsylvania electors because Joe Biden is, has established a league of, of uh, undocumented voters who voted him illegally into office as part of a quid pro quo for them getting citizenship. I and mean, that's what he alleged on the floor of the Congress, which is crazy. But ultimately, it boils down to I'm impeaching. I want him not to be elected president because we have policy differences, which is something that is fine in a campaign, not fine once the results are certified. Um, so he's reckless and irresponsible, but I'm not sure it, it merits that kind of extraordinary remedy. What would is if the allegations that um, elected representatives were in league with providing material support for these insurrectionaries, that's expulsion worthy. And that seems to be on the table if half these allegations that we're hearing are true. Well, and I think, but I, I do, I want to say one thing about, uh, of caution about what was said about that. And it has, can, there, there's been a lot of this percolating on the Democratic side, understandably. But if, if you get a, people get private tours of the Capitol from their representatives all the time, even under the COVID lockdown restrictions where the public tours have been shut down. Um, if, if a representative gave a, gave a private tour to a constituent without any foreknowledge about that constituent's plans for the next day, that is not something that deserves expulsion. That is just, you know, they have some crazy constituents and they should denounce them and they should follow through with the, you know, if, uh, about with impeachment. And I, and I worry like some of the, uh, there's the paranoia is understandable. This whole city right now is like in a really weird mood. <laughs> I can tell you, I've lived here for 25 years. I've never seen anything like it. But I, I really want, I really hope our elected leaders will just calm down a little bit with airing those suspicions publicly and particularly taking them to the media because it's, that doesn't help right now because it is, as Noah said, it's an ongoing investigation. We actually need to have faith in our, the institutions of justice that are now pursuing, uh, these actions and to have faith that they're going to do so without, you know, further inflaming conspiracy theorists and, and spreading wild rumors, especially given that, you know, we're inaugurating a new president next week. Okay, so uh, final question. Um, so there was a scene last night in the Capitol uh, when the Capitol Police, presumably under the direction of Nancy Pelosi, who was the Speaker of the House and therefore sort of essentially the titular head of the Capitol Police, along with Mitch McConnell, uh, placed magnetometers at the entrance to the Senate and House chambers. And House members, uh, Republican House members, went uh, bananas, a bunch of them, um, uh, and said, how dare you? And, you know, this, this sucks. And you're, you're, you're starting something you can't finish and blah, blah, blah. Right. Well, okay. You know, this is my workplace. My, uh, Louis Gomer walked through and said, you can't stop me. I have to cast a vote. Okay. Granted, uh, elected representatives have an independent standing that's different from, from other people. But, um, you know, every time I go into a museum now, I got to go through a magnetometer. Like, uh, you know, I don't give a shit whether or not Louis Gohmert has to walk through a magnetometer just to make sure that he doesn't have a gun in his belt. When one of his caucus members, uh, Lauren Boebert, said she was going to be carrying a Glock onto the floor of the house. I mean, you know, th these are bad times, a bad moment. Bad things are happening. People need to feel... Uh, secure. So Louis Gomer can't go through a magnetometer the same way everybody else in the country has to wear a mask and they're standing on the floor complaining that they have to wear masks. You know what? These, these guys are, they're just antinomian um, 
they are they are asserting a kind of privilege that they claim elites right. assert all the time to They're behave however they wish to behave. Yeah. No, that's ridiculous. And that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, I know. yeah, the usefulness. I mean, I'm sorry, even with the masking stuff, there have been several representatives who said, I got COVID because I was locked up with these Republicans who wouldn't wear masks. Number one, the Republicans should have had masks on. It's ridiculous. They're being absolutely uh, irresponsible not wearing them. There's also no evidence that those people got COVID from that. The Democratic caucus invited a COVID positive member to come to Washington and cast a vote on the floor so that Nancy Pelosi was assured of her speakerhood. Could have been that. Could have been any. We don't know. But again, there's an understand. Again, understandably, tensions are very high right now. And that's exactly the moment where the people who are in this in, in these positions of power should not act like toddlers throwing a tantrum if they have to walk through a metal detector and they should wear their masks. They also shouldn't spread rumors about their colleagues that are unfounded and have no evidence for them. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. And, the you know, and COVID shaming and all of that is a is a is a is a itself a kind of repulsive impulse in in, in many ways. Uh, that, that said, once again, I don't think that there is a comparison between uh, people saying I'm not going to wear a mask and you can't make me wear a mask when you can't go into a store without a mask. Right. Uh, and maybe they don't think that that's fair, that you shouldn't be able to go into a store without a mask, uh, Republican members being sort of mask libertarians or something like that. But too bad. People have to go into a store and, wear, and too bad. They need to wear a mask on the on the they're in a, they're in inside. They're inside a building in spaces where they yell, which is how covid spreads through through spittle. And they yell and they yell at each other. They were doing it on on the night of the, uh, you know, on the night of uh, January 6th, the morning of January 7th, yelling and screaming at each other. Spittle flecked out of their mouths the way it does invisibly when people yell or sing. Um, So, you know, so like be a civilized person instead of a repellent goon like the people that we see on tape. Yeah, fine. So you represent them? Fine, represent them. Uh, be judged uh, morally uh, by people when you behave that way. And and the people in the Capitol Police who are staying there being abused by Louis Gohmert and uh, these other people screaming and yelling at them, they didn't put the magnetometers up. It's like yelling at a TSA person. They're not responsible for the policies. Leave them alone. Like, what is the matter with you people? I mean, I... You know, it, 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 it's it's cringe-inducing to think that one shares the same country with them if they're going to behave like this a week after, uh, you know, a riot took over the Capitol building. Um, and, you know, uh, and the, uh, the Capitol policeman crushed, a Capitol policeman smashed in the head and killed, you know, another one dead by suicide, um, others apparently on the verge of suicide, like they saw things and things were going on in that building uh, that you know we we don't we don't have a full reckoning of, which is what Noah's talking about. I mean, we don't have a full reckoning of what happened during those two hours. But I we have watched all those videos on YouTube of what the people were doing and saying outside, and they were terrifying, and they were no less terrifying than a jihadist ululating uh, in front of a you know in in front of a screen you know in, in front of a camera somewhere in, you know, Yemen. I mean, they're no different. They were psychotic, psychopathic people with murder in their eyes. And there are hundreds and hundreds of them. That's the, 
That's the thing here that 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 makes this qualitatively different. The rally there were twenty five thousand people at probably, but and they should not be blamed even if they indulge in the ideas. And that's where the Democrats and liberals are going to overreach if they start targeting everybody who wanted to show up and say that they thought the election was stolen. Those people don't deserve to be targeted. They can have bad opinions. You have bad opinions all the time. We all have, you know, people like terrible movies and, and they, you know, and they like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They have bad opinions, but they shouldn't be, you know, blame. They shouldn't be held. They shouldn't be held economically or fiscally or uh, employment terms liable for those, those, those bad things. But uh, you know, the hundreds of people who went marched on the Capitol and did not stop when they saw a fence and kept going and were talking on those videos, not only should every one of them, but, you know, the question is not just should every one of them, you know, be be prosecuted and thrown in jail if or whatever, but we do need to know how long the fuse was and where it started and where and where this goes because, uh, you know, as as Noah said, as as Christine, as you all indicate, this is not the end of anything. This is not the end of anything. Jim Garrity, our friend at, at National Review, made a very, I thought, a very interesting parallel on their podcast yesterday. He said, "This can go one of two ways. It can be Oklahoma City, or it can be Columbine. Oklahoma City came after." federal overreach and horrible federal misbehavior, right? Waco, Ruby Ridge, um, authorities storming, you know, like authorities causing the deaths of, 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 of innocent uh, people uh, in a misguided effort to, you know, establish control uh, with some, in some cases, false claims of misbehavior by the people inside those compounds, right? So, he said, look, if Timothy McVeigh had blown up an IRS office where at, at late at night where nobody, you know, was, maybe the militia movement, he would have been hailed as a hero by the militia movement and he was so things would have gone on there. But he blew up a federal office building, 158 people died, including 12 children who were in a daycare center, and nobody claimed him. Nobody wanted anything to do with him, and the militia movement was halted in its tracks by the horror that was displayed there. Columbine has initiated, inaugurated 20 years of school shootings. 20 years of school shootings. So is what happened on the 6th of January going to be Oklahoma City? Is it going to be the moment that everybody rears in horror and says, pull yourself back, pull yourself back from this precipice? Or is this an inauguration of 20 years of civil political violence of a new sort. That's what we don't know. That's the threat that we face. That's why Trump needs to be impeached and convicted. Uh, He will be impeached today. We'll see what happens with the conviction. So for uh, Christine, Abe, and Noam, John Podhoretz, keep the candle burning.